<laughs> Today's episode of Bandology is brought to you by Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is a great one-spot go-to for uploading and distributing your podcast across the internet. They'll take care of putting your show up on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and dozens of other smaller services that you probably don't even know about. All you have to do is set up an account, which is free, and Anchor also 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 will set you up with sponsors so you can do ads like this one to start earning money on your podcasts right away so check it out anchor.fm and if you're just looking to stream podcasts download their app from your app store of choosing that's anchor.fm or the anchor podcast app check it out spread the word and enjoy spotify i mean anchor i mean bandology I guess I should leave my cap off my water bottle. It'll probably be drinking. Put it, it somewhere where I can spill it over the computer. <laughs> Put it in the spill-free zone. That is a designated <laughs> spill-free zone. <laughs> it's, it's out of any elbow reach. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm so excited for today's episode. I'm excited for every episode we do. Definitely, when we were we were thinking about this podcast, this was the band that I really, really wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, this is the one you're really jonesing about. I was so jonesing about it that I, I didn't want to do it first because I wanted to get better at it <laughs> to give it to, to do it correctly. It's a good plan. We're gonna do the band Deerhoof. This is gonna be the first episode of a two-part series on Deerhoof. Now that we know how to figure out arcs, <laughs> what we can fit in. And uh, I'm calling this one a love letter to Greg Saunders. And Greg Saunders is the drummer of Deerhoof, and he is definitely one of the reasons I love this band so much, one of many. And if I do my job correctly, by the end of today's episode... You will love them, too. Not only will you love love them, too. He will be your favorite drummer. And where you have a surprise at the end, too, I'm going to try to work in. If if, if we stretch for time, if not, we'll put it on the second episode. When trying to figure out what to play today, we are going to listen to four albums in an EP that all take place in just four years. (laughs) It's a productive full-time band. Yeah, we're going to listen to four albums between 2002 and 2005. Good years. Great years. And not only that, but just to kind of give you a broader view of Deerhoof, they've been around since 94 officially, but they've been playing music for 23 years now? Yeah, 24, 23. Yeah, Um, with like a few core members, which we'll get into. But also... In 20 years, they recorded 14 albums. <laughs> and they're not like crap albums. As you will see, they're all... Well, that's <laughs> up to opinion. That's up to opinion, but as you'll see, they're like... Everyone's stellar. There's no like crap filler stuff. It's just really well thought out. And not only that, I'm, this band, they, they push themselves and they, they try to just... Instead of just like putting out another crap album like U2 or Red Chili Peppers <laughs> later in their career... Who wait, like, get four years between crap albums. Exa- exactly. Like, they're constantly trying to make something that's like if they had a band ethos it's why are we making music why do this i think they always approach songwriting and and making an album in that way like is it worth recording is it worth playing and that's that's a good plan it's so cool and and i'm in total awe because each album gets better who does that not many bands get to do this especially like into a 20-year arc that's crazy dude i mean even like you look at say the rolling stones by the mid 80s when they were hitting the 20-year mark like their albums were getting really crappy. Yeah. After the seventies, they were phoning it in, probably they're like, "Oh, they're making millions." Phoning it in, but they were, the 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 chutzpah wasn't there anymore. The chutzpah. The chutzpah. That was good. Good Yiddish. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great intro for today's episode too. 
<laughs> I wrote it down. Well, tell, tell us about this Mushugna Shitska that runs the runs the show. The sh- the the the, the Mushka Pipik, the Manipakeshka's daughter. <laughs> so how I was gonna start off the episode, <laughs> which I can't now. But so before there was Deer Hunter, before there was Deer Tick, before there was Wolf Eyes or Wolf Parade or Mice Parade, there was Deer Hoof. Good. Good. <laughs> I can't think of any other off the top of my head. Uh, animal and band names. Swans. Black swans. Oh, blacks. There we go. Uh, uh, you're good. At the, you're way better at uh, this than me. Oh, grizzly bear. Grizzly bear. <laughs> white endless. lion. It's it's great endless. white. It's endless. Um, um, shoot. I'm farting. Okay. That was good. That was good for 20 seconds. <laughs> oh, real quick. So when we were kind of spitballing ideas for the show and white snake and <laughs> well done. That was good. <laughs> That was my mom's favorite band. Uh, no lie. Shout out to Jackie Sheena. Um, Did she have the hair to match? <laughs> no, she me, never had much hair. Never had long hair. So when we were coming up with ideas for the, the show and how to research it, I was in Texas. I was on a train from Fort Worth to Austin, Texas, and a train in front of us broke down, and I was stuck on a train for what I would find out to be was nine hours. <laughs> that is, uh, that's good. That's it, fun. It felt like an experiment on my brain, but I tried to put it to use, and I was trying, starting to research. Did they let people out of the train when that happens? Or? No. You're stuck. I could have walked to Taylor, Texas, is where we were trying to go. It was, I was 20 miles. The next stop was our stop. It was horrible. We were supposed to get there at dinner at like 5 p.m., and we got there at 1 a.m. <laughs> it's, it's bad. But while I was stuck on that train, I was YouTubing every Deerhoof interview I could, and it was just unusable. As in, and I even, when I went to see Deerhoof in January for this podcast, I put a uh, tape recorder in front of Greg Saunders, who's the nicest guy, and all of the members of the band are just the best, and we'll get into we'll get into that. Again, this episode's called A Love Letter to Greg Saunders, so I can't say enough good things about him. You and, know which direction your arrow's pointing. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is that when... I was stuck on the train. I was watching all those interviews, and it was just like ethereal talking. Like he's just kind of taking the piss out of the interviewer, but like in a fun way. Like I feel like their music speaks for themselves, and that's kind of what he's always kind of getting at when you interview him. Um, so we kind of have an exclusive. <laughs> our friend Dave Russell, friend of the show, friend of Mike and I's, our friend Dave Russell. Turns out that his older brother was in a band with Greg Saunders. Yes. <laughs> so I spent a cu- I spent a couple minutes talking with Dave, and we have an exclusive for the show. This isn't from Wikipedia. This isn't from an interview on YouTube. This is from <laughs> Greg's friend's brother. <laughs> a guy who knew a guy who was there. <laughs> so real quick, if I could just hog the mic for two seconds, I'll let our listeners in on a little Deer Hoof history. Deer Hoof Street? Deer, deer, what did you say? Deer Hoof Street. Deer Hoof Street. So our friend Dave Russell has a brother named Aaron Russell. Aaron Russell was a freshman at Oberlin College in Ohio in 1987, where he met Greg Sonner, who was studying music composition. When they both graduated at Oberlin, they moved to San Francisco after college and started a band called Niter Pit with Rob Fisk and Tasha Riggins. In 1994, Aaron and Tasha, who were also dating in Niter Pit, uh, they broke up, dismantling the band. So left was Greg Sonner and Rob Fisk, and they had a bunch of Niter Pit shows booked. So Greg and Rob renamed their band Deerhoof and continued playing as a two-piece and performed shows as an improvised drum and bass duo. Then, in May of 1995, Satomi Matsuzaki moved from Japan to San Francisco, and a week after relocating, she joined the band Deerhoof as a vocalist with no experience ever being in a band and later taught herself how to play bass. A little bit more history here. On October 28, 1997, Deerhoof released their first full-length album, 
the man, the king, the girl, through the label Kill Rock Stars. To give you a quick overview of 20-year span that we'll be talking about over the next two episodes, Deerhoof has released 14 albums in 20 years, with the core members being Greg Satomi and guitarist John Dietrich, who joined the band in 1999. And like I said, we did the math, and uh, they did 14 albums in 20 years, <laughs> which is incredibly prolific. And that's not even counting for EPs or singles or remixes, which they've also done tons of. Of course. So much like Al Jurgensen, who we're talking about with Ministry, this is just a superior, prolific band um, striving to make amazing music, striving to not only make music, but to make music that is in search of the meaning of making music. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intense, but the cool thing, I was a little turned off them at first because I, th- I thought there was a pretentiousness, but I made it up. And we'll talk about that as we listen to the songs. So I've been hogging the mic a lot here. And Mike, this is the part of the show I love. You don't know Deerhoof that well, do you? I think I saw them 0203. They were cool. They were good. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was, I think, was that the show that they did? They, they were touring with that guy Rob Fisk you mentioned. Right. He had another band at that time called Seven Year Rabbit Cycle. Which he mentioned in the Animal Collective uh, episode. Yes, I think I brought them up. Yeah. Yeah, there's another animal band name. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Deerhoof was just, yeah, kind of like Animal Collective. It was one of those bands that all my friends were really into, and I just never got around to buying their albums. And I probably have a CDR somewhere buried in a book from, you know, 2004 with a couple of their albums on it. But it just never, I was never grabbed by the band. You want to just jump right into it? Yeah, let's, uh, let's toss a song on. We're going to listen to a song called This Magnificent Bird Will Rise. It's uh, from the album Reveille, came out in 2002. The number so one hit. I'm gonna recognize this song. You you probably will recognize this one then. This is their kind of their breakout album. This one took three years to write and record. Interesting. So keep that in mind as we listen to the other albums today. So like their first album was like 97, then they did another one like shortly after, and then it was kind of a break before this one came out. Yes, and I mean we're gonna skip all that early stuff sure. for time because to hit this pocket of just awesomeness. Sure. This, these four albums. So yeah, let's do it. This song's called This Magnificent Bird Will Rise from the album Reveille. Reveille. The trumpet scatters its awful sound over the graves of all lands, summoning all before the throne. Death and mankind shall be stunned when nature arises to give account before the judge.
That's a lot of fun. Yeah, you were smiling a bit there. Yeah. Brings me back. Did you hear that one before? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, that Koopa Koopa thing I kind of makes me remember some of the, what their, some of their stuff was. What are some of your visceral reactions to hearing that? Visceral? Like just straight up off the dome. Oh, what yeah. What do you think about that song? It's very post-grunge era. It reminds me of like the period when like everyone was listening to a lot of Fugazi. What is that period? I guess this would be like late 90s to early 2000s before Fugazi kind of dithered out. Um, it's weird, noisy art rock. It's definitely weird, noisy art rock. Yeah. I think already we're going to either lose an audience or gain an audience because the, <laughs> the, the weird timings and the weird kind of deconstructed drums and the weird... Oh, I mean, yeah. like they all, The jarringness. That is throughout. <laughs> the, I mean, that's, that's what I remember. But also knowing that you know Greg Saunders came out of studying music composition, it makes sense. Well, it also it also strikes me too because I was talking to you about doing a tortoise episode the other week. Right? Okay, yeah, yeah. And I went back and I was listening to a lot of the bands that Tortoise came out of. A lot of them were like Oberlin grads. Ah. So it's interesting to go back and it's nice to hear these guys in like 2002 echoing these like post hardcore bands from like what was probably happening around Oberlin and Louisville. Um, in that general Midwest area, like around 87, 88, when Saunders was there. It's, yeah. yeah. So I want to say, it's like, oh yeah, when all the bands used to listen, when everyone used to listen to a lot of Fugazi, but it's also, I'm hearing Squirrel Bait, Bastro, Bitch Magnet, Slint, that school of uh, RD post-hardcore is really present in what they're doing. But they're, you know, those bands kind of broke apart what hardcore did, and these guys are even breaking apart strong song structure even more. And that's what, Yes, you can attempt to do that, but I don't think anyone can do it like they do it. Do you know sure, what I mean? You're right. Like, you know, you have to. There has to be kind of like the right chemistry and timing for a band to be able to do something really well. To rein in back and to talk about this is the album Reveille, that was that kind of their breakout album. Reveille was was written and recorded by Greg, Satomi, and John. And going here on forward for every Dirhaf album, these are the three core members. And just first, you know, some fun stats as i always like to throw out it was critically acclaimed from the year it came out it was both on pitchfork's best album 2002 it was on new york times best album 2002 so we're into the we're into the pitchfork era at this point we yeah yeah definitely i would say so but i i feel like pitchfork wasn't the behemoth it is now and this is definitely like a pitchfork band i feel yeah like. yeah i think Deerhoof and animal collective and probably mars volta as well we're getting into the beginning of that pitchfork era of like this is indie music. <laughs> this is what's cool. Yeah. This is what cool kids are listening to. And then people are just being like, I don't get it. I'm glad you brought that up because when I first discovered this band, I just assumed they were pretentious because this music is so artsy. And sure. And it's taken me becoming a huge fan to realize that that, that was a total assumption. That, that this is 
probably the most unpretentious band playing the most pretentious music. Sure, but, the music can be pretentious, but the people behind it are not. And they are not. And they are having fun, and I will be stressing a lot throughout this episode and the next one, just go see them live, because this is unbelievable. But yeah, this, let's go into the clip, Cooper, and we'll talk about it. Okay. So what was it in like about post like immediately post 9/11 that people were really into like weird? Well, don't forget they were recording this possibly right. They were working, but like the success of the album, not necessarily. I mean, sure they're doing their thing. They've been doing their thing for a while at this point. Yeah, <clears throat> Satomi came in 1997, so yeah, at so least she, five years. That's yeah, a long time. She, yeah, she'd been with the band for you know a good period at this point. But like the goofy little flute parts in both songs. <laughs> I wonder if that stems from, uh, yeah, I might have glossed over it. But again, love letter to Greg Saunders here. He studied composition at Oberlin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe, at, and as his quest and Deerhoof's quest to write music that asked the question, why does music exist? Yeah, I guess maybe, I mean, it's definitely like a childhood fun to it. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the things I kind of remember about Spitomi's performance in the bands always was, Cherubic is a good word for it. Very cherubic. It's a great word. What and does that mean? Like, you know, like a cherub, like a little bubbly, oh. bouncy. I didn't know you could flip cheery. into an adjective. <laughs> well, so to go back to the pretentiousness, back in 2002, hearing this and hearing that track, it's like, am I? Is there something I'm missing here? Like I, I'm hearing this song back then, and I'm thinking, like, is this art over my head? This is some sure high concept art that I'm not getting and it makes me angry like Like, what what were you listening to leading up to this I was obsessed with Animal Collective Square Pusher um, I mean some pretty pretentious stuff too (laughs) like you weren't like hitting this wasn't super duper left field for you when you when you got into it no it it is timing wise like the drumming again is like again I'm so blown away by his drumming and and it's something I really want to focus on today but thank you. That is a good question. But the joke's on me because now I understand that that was as that was just people in the studio having fun. Yeah, they were messing around, and I never really heard that on a recording. Okay, because yeah, like going back to like I was saying, like the Fugazi references. There was Fugazi records from like In on the Kill Taker and Red Medicine. There's a lot of just that sort of guitar noise and scronky stuff, and here's us just sticking around with our instruments, working weird noise, and then. The song comes in, yeah, and then it's like, okay, we're gonna drop it. We're gonna go back and, you know, so there's, but I don't know the super timeline for all these weird like avant-garde guitarists because I didn't get into 
you're not a really guitar player. I'm not, a, guitar guitar I'm not a guitar now. player, but like, <laughs> you know, like Bill Orkut and Don Dietrich from Borba Domagus. Well, Borba Domagus had been going since like the mid 80s, but just people that were like misusing guitar on purpose. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of like at what point that crossed over from being its own thing into like the post punk scene. And this is very, uh, this is an, you know, an example of that. But I mean, also they're from the Bay Area, so there was a lot more cross cross pollination in the totally. Bay Area of the experimental music and the more straight ahead, straight ahead punk rock <laughs> and pop punk music that, was, quite straight ahead. that was going on over there. Yeah, and I want to play this clip too because Chris Cooper, I can also say a friend of the show sure. from Fat Woman. From well, did he ever respond to your email? No, he's not a friend of the show. <laughs> Well, Chris Cooper from the then Fat Woman of Error is on this track. Yeah. And they called it Cooper. And what was the story again? Oh, I guess he was just in the studio. I guess he was doing the guitar noise in the studio. And um, Satomi so would just, you know, she would just vocalize things like that. And I guess she was just had the mic in her hand and he's doing his little <laughs> guitar stuff. And she's just bouncing around going, Koopa, Koopa, Koopa. Wasn't really connecting it with his name per se. But then they're just like that. You're just saying Cooper over and over again. So we're gonna call the song Cooper. <laughs> yeah. So jokes on me. I think I'm. I'm thinking I'm hearing this like high concept art and just people having fun. Yeah. It's just people goofing off. Yeah. This band is so good. But there's this element that's like having fun and friends hanging out. It's like the best friend band that ever existed. Sure. They made it work and they continue to tour. Um, Reveille is not my favorite. Al- uh, it's an amazing album and I love it and you should totally check it out. But the next album is really where I became a super fan. the next fan. album the one with the green cover? No, this album. No, the green cover is the, the EP. Oh, okay. We're going to... This has the blue cover. This I'm is the blue at cover. A, on the computer screen. <laughs> so the next album is called Apple O. It was released a year later in 2003. And so instead of spending three years in the studio like Reveille, they just went into the studio and they recorded <laughs> one nine-hour long recording session. Just straight. Just straight. And again, like I brought this up before in one of the other episodes about the song Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan, how that was just a live take and then it just lives in history forever as this most amazing recording. Again, I feel like this album is the same. Every song on this album I thought was handcrafted over three years like Reveille but they just went in there and just rocked so it's like they had their two albums 97 and then whatever came off after that and then this so Reveille was their third album oh Reveille was their fourth studio album and this is now we're at their fifth studio album okay I'm just trying to think of like the trajectory here so you know, they had kind of a break between their third and fourth albums like maybe someone's finishing a college degree or something and then this album like kind of took off and they were able to tour and also you have to remember like the, this is like the end of the mp3 era and when people would buy you know the colored vinyl and the cd yeah they would buy like two copies of an album so i think like they were doing pretty good financially off of record sales at this point and they may have they may have just been like oh okay we can actually afford to do that is exactly what happened and yeah, i think also they're all like working at a restaurant or something <laughs> yeah and I, I, I think also like kill rock stars around this point suddenly became much more of a lucrative record label than you know it was in the late 90s it was like the mid yeah. late 90s it had like an air it was like oh this is like this is like this really cool label to check out and then just like the sea change of where people were you know eyeballing and queuing into like cool new music they were going to kill rock stars for a long time 
and they just started like, oh, this something this label actually has a lot of money. Absolutely. Let's just say all four albums we're listening to today are all on Kill Rock Stars. Right. And that's a good point. This was definitely around the time I was in my early 20s or even late teens. And I was just starting to get into vinyl because I realized that all these really cool labels were having it on record and I was bored with CDs. But <laughs> yeah, so it was so hard to choose a song for Apple O. Every song on this album is stellar. Every song is amazing. I tried to distill it to a song that I thought encompassed, uh, distilled the like the core of like Deerhoof. Actually, if I was to choose a song, I think this is the album I remember like everyone being yeah into. This was this is a great one. It's a little more poppy as than Reveille, which was kind of noisy. So yeah, this song's called Lamore Stories, and uh, let's give it a go. chills like every time greg stops and just hits that snare with both sticks it's just like it's like the most beautiful fucking thing <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that they keep their songs like super short yeah but they're packed with a lot of ideas so it's like oh that song was only like two and a half minutes but it felt a lot broader because there was just enough going on but they don't hold on to anything too long you're the for per- it to get repetitive or boring or overwhelming 
You're the perfect co-host. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of emotion, right? Yeah, I should go back and just check this album out and listen to it, knowing that it was done in a, a nine-hour-long stretch. Yeah, I didn't know that until the research. And um, I like Reveille a lot, but I love this album so much more because it's less noisy. I feel like they were probably trying really hard to make this like artistic expression. And, then sure. they, and this album, they just went to the studio and just fucking rocked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they were just like, oh, okay, you know, we can you know, split hairs over time signatures and textures Ooh, add distortion and, here and, and a weird noise here and yeah and like they spent three years on an album there's a lot of really goofy planning and conversation going into it yeah a lot of nitpicking and stuff yeah, yeah. so then they're just going like oh okay you know this we've been touring for the past year we've got a bunch of ideas let's just go straight ahead and do more straight ahead songs you know i should and they were able to just nail it out in a day it, yeah, it's awesome. Well, we should point out that now there's a fourth member. <laughs> yes. There's a whole other guitarist. Uh, his name is Chris Cohen. And it's funny because he joined the band between the when they finished the recording of Reveille and the release of it. <laughs> okay. That's a good point to join a band. That's a good point to join a band right as they release an album that you weren't a part of. But yeah, um, Chris plays guitar. Having the John Dietrich and Chris on the guitar, both of them, just like adds a really great rock and roll feel. I don't know how else to put it. And then what I love so much about that song too that we just heard is hearing Greg play drums and just loosely weaving in and out of the song. And like, he's not just keeping a 4-4 beat. He is, he's bringing emotion and, and drive and he's not just the rhythm section. He's like as important as the vocals, I feel like. Or maybe me being a drummer, I just, I'm so sensitive to this. Sure, sure. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, too, that uh, I was I was listening to a local band CD. I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I kind of realized one thing, that it's two things need to, re- like, really matter to me in listening to an album performance and production-wise, and that's vocals and drums. You don't need to be great at either of them but you need to be confident in what you're doing and not sound hesitant or unconfident in your playing or performing. Because if you are, it just pulls, it just kind of whatever else is happening, it ruins it. That's the Quincy Jones ethos too. Like that's Michael Jackson, the vocals so you can sing along and the beats so you can dance. Sure. (laughs) You know, it's not necessarily the same, like to the same uh, ends, but it's, you know, it's a similar idea. Yeah, it's a similar idea. It's just funny. I always thought that I guitar is my first instrument. And I always thought guitar was the most important thing and everything else didn't matter. But no, not the case at all. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it matters immensely when you're the guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we play a clip real quick? Sure. What do you want to play today? This is the opening track to Apollo. This is what really hooked me. Um, it's called Dummy Discards a Heart. And let's just, you just got to hear the, the opening to this album because it's just so stellar.
Yeah, that's the song I remember. Yeah, it's a fun track. That's the that's like the song I remember from being on college radio and what people would play all the time. It opens up the album. It's so so much fun. Yeah. So you just start taking guitar lessons, right? Yes, I'm like two guitar lessons in. I've always been um, very uh, intimidated by Deerhoof. The drumming, the guitar playing, the bass playing, the singing. Like, they just seem so talented. And then my friend showed me this lick that we're hearing on guitar. He showed me how to play it, and it's three notes. And it's sure. re- and it's so easy, and I was like, oh, my God. I'm, I was overthinking <laughs> this. I always came to this band with a mindset that they're high-concept art, and they're just, they're just so amazing artists. They are amazing artists, but there's a lot of fun. It's a lot of having fun with exploring music, a lot of fun just like noodling. And, Simplicity uh, is a really important thing. Yes, it's simple. A lot of it is simple. It's just they just do it in a way that they approach it all in a way that sure. just so, is so unique so, to themselves. So this album compared to Reveille, Reveille's like the really, it's noisy, it's got all the crazy time signatures, it's really plotted out. This song is fun. This song's fun. There, this this album, Candy Apple O. Candy Apple <laughs> uh, Apple O is like, it's the fun poppy record where it's not poppy. It's not pop. It is. It is. I mean, it's poppy in like, in like it's, you know, octave range, but it's not like verse. It's still not hitting like this verse chorus verse predictable song structure, but it's, it's more accessible because it's more fun. Yes. Because they're not trying things. So they're not trying to make things so dense and technical. Exactly. It's, it's and it's not top forty pop. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's. I mean, this was like a great period in college radio um, for me, from what I remember, because things were people had really embraced the fun of dissonance. Yeah. And like you're saying, Animal Collective started around this time. It started Definitely. a few years before this, and this is like what 2003. So like 2004 and five is what I remember. Things really shifting away from like fun noisy post-punk music to to more like almost dour folky music to stuff that i always equated to sounding like am gold <laughs> so it wasn't kids that grew up listening to punk rock anymore it was kids that grew up listening to their parents like cat stevens and Joni mitchell records and approached music from more of like an emotional singer songwriter and as opposed to having fun playing the music and i was just like i was just like i wasn't having it we're not like, you know, like when Decemberists and Death oh, Cab yeah. for Cutie uh-huh. hit, and I was just like, these bands kind of suck because yeah. they were trying too hard to make folky. Not you know, Death Cab was definitely not a folky band, but their music was it was it overthought. Was, it was overthought. Yeah. yeah, and not to say that emotions and you know intelligence shouldn't be present, but you know the the fun was really kind of pulled out of it, and it was kids that wanted to be intellectual about their emotions. Or probably more into you know that we're doing this music. Um, thank you for all that. <laughs> uh, I want to skip hashtag tangent. <laughs> hashtag long tangent. Um, before we leave this album, real quick, I just thought it'd be worth mentioning that it was uh, Pitchfork's number sixteen on the on the top albums of two thousand three, and it came at one hundred ninety nine at the top two hundred of the two thousands list of Pitchfork. But whatever, I could care less what <laughs> Pitchfork rates it at. Um, okay, so. All right, so actually, I want to interject in. You're saying the guitarist Chris Cohen. Yes. Um, I had used to have a couple records from a project he did after leaving Deerhoof called Curtains. Oh. Um, 
brought it up over on Discogs here to make sure I was knowing which member of the band. I thought it was Greg Saunders that did it, but it was Chris Cohen gotcha. that, that did the project. I can't remember if they actually toured out here or not, but our friend Dave Russell, he is the proprietor, for a better word, of a website, suchfun.net, and hosts a lot of MP3 archives of music from this circle of friends. You know, these people that were, you know, tangentially involved with music he was involved in and what his brother was involved in. So Curtains, you can go to curtains.suchfun.net and explore their music um, and download a lot of their out-of-print albums for free right there. Mike, thank you. (laughs) That rules. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So now let's go to 2004. Uh, This next album is called Milkman. It was also on Milkman. Milkman. Uh, it was released in March 9, 2004 on Kill Rock Stars and Five Rue Christine and now ATP Records. Oh, yes. Five Rue Christine. I remember that that being the, the, the more experimental subset of uh, Kill Rock Stars. Are they like a sub-label of they Kill Rock Stars? They were a sub-label, yeah. Oh, okay. Because they released every album that we're listening to today as well. Yes. But I just didn't feel like saying, saying I was too lazy to say their name. Yeah. Oh, they're a sub-label. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, I was kind of like, oh, what's this Five Rue Christine? Then I realized it always came, when I was doing college radio, I always realized that those were the same packages from Kill Rock Stars. And then I just kind of realized it was like a sub-label that they did. And they just picked up, like, yeah, like weirder, the weirder bands that were. So Deerhoof kind of shifted over to Five Rue Christine. I'm not sure why. But they also did uh, stuff with Need New Body, a band from Philadelphia. I remember being on there. My, my friend and I have a nickname for Mike Barrett, and it's the Dean for dropping knowledge like this. He's not even a professor. He's a Dean. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's play the song Milkman, but we're not just going to play a song from the album. Uh, I want to play a live version, and I know I keep dissing on Pitchfork, but this is uh, this came from Pitchfork's Juan's Basement, and it's uh, it has a later guitarist, which we'll get to, uh, Rodriguez on guitar, but... Uh, I wanted to play the live version just so you can get a feel of what this band sounds like live. Because again, you need to go see this band live. They are the most amazing.
Yeah, so Greg Saunders just has a kick drum, a snare, a cra- and two crashes. You beat me to it. I was going to say, Mike, did you notice anything in that live video? <laughs> like we were saying before, keeping it simple. Dude, it's so crazy when that dawned on me, because I, I play drums too, and I have all these toms, a floor tom. Everything that we've listened to so far, surprise to the listener, there's the most minimal kit. Sure. It, it's like, yes, what'd you say? Kick and a snare in this video. Kick and a snare, uh, crash, and a hi-hat. Yeah. It's just... Wait, let's double check. <laughs> no, not even a hi-hat. He has like a weird like... It's like... He has like two rides on top of each yeah, other. Yeah, two like rides on top. Hi-hat. Yeah, like a hi-hat. But he doesn't have the, the kick the kick part of the hi-hat. And it sounds like a full kit when he plays. I can't tell you how in love with this drummer I am. It's amazing to do so much with so little. It just blows my mind. And I saw them live... Uh, earlier this year in 2018, and he only had a crash ride, a kick, and a snare. So there was even less than what we heard. <laughs> it didn't matter at all. He just wants to carry less and less with him. It's so smart. It's, it wish, yeah, being a drummer, it makes so much sense. Um, what I'm digging with this record, it's this is like, what, a couple of years into having two guitarists? Yes. So they're really starting to figure out like what they can do with the interplay of two guitars. And yeah, like this, rec- this song opens up, and it's like, Oh, this is like getting to be their arena rock. Yeah, definitely. Feel. Good call. But also, I was, I'm was i noticing that one of the things that probably delegates this band more to like an artier, nerdier audience is how Japanese Satomi's presence in the band is. Yeah. And so it's like this juxtaposition of, yeah, there's like a dozen other bands that are doing this kind of rock this kind of like disjointed art rock but they stand out because of her vocals and her her it's Jap- different you know different. the way how yeah. yeah like i said her, her how japanese her presence is absolutely and hearing it for the first time in 2002 2003 i found her voice more abrasive back then i think now i'm more used to it right it just it but it's still it's like so home. tiny and so high yeah and she is tiny person. Oh, for sure. You can't see in that video. She's four foot nothing. She's <laughs> four very foot short. Nothing. She's four foot nothing. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean. I just, but it's great because on stage, you know, when we saw them earlier this year, Shannon came with me, my partner, and she made the point that she doesn't get crowded on the stage. You know, she's playing with three other guys and she has space. You know, when you have a drummer like Greg who can just have this emotional, loud presence. But yet they all play to each other. No one out drones the other. And when someone takes a solo, like one of the guitarists goes off, the, uh, the other three members hold back. Yeah, totally. That's, that was another thing I was noticing too with this song is that there's a lot of space in the arrangement. So even when you have the bass playing and the, I guess like the main guitar melody, there's the guy coming in with little licks oh the second guitarist is coming in with little licks over the melt guitar melody but he's not there the whole time and he's not like there's periods when it just sounds like he's not even playing because they don't need two guitar parts yes and that's what i think that's what makes a great musician is knowing when not to play for sure especially if you're a drummer especially yeah if you're a guitar player and it's to play with greg because as you're probably telling from listening to all these songs the timing goes off or he'll go off but then come back in on the one and it must be difficult to play with someone like that sure and then to be able to work with a musician like that you must all four of them must be in their own world 
you could take another accomplished musician, throw them in with Deerhoof, and they might not be able to be able oh, to do sure. anything. So maybe we should listen to another clip. Sure. What are we going to bring up this time? Uh, let's do, let's just hear a little bit. Oh, there's a really cool part in this song that I wanted to have listeners hear going towards the art rock nerdy kind of left field that we love so much here. <laughs> um, let's listen to a clip from That Big Orange Sun Run Over Speed Light. Yeah, Sonner's drumming is so propulsive. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> and I'm just, I was listen, I'm just listening to what he's doing because knowing it's like, oh, he's just got a snare and a kick drum. Changes everything, right? And it's just like rolls and hits, rolls and hits, and he just trimmed it down to how much dynamics and how much expression he can get out of just a couple of yeah. But it also it keys in really tight to what the Deerhoof band sound is. I wonder if he was like, if he was to drum for another band, if he would expand his kit to yeah, be like you know do? like I'm gonna have a different voice in this band that I'm gonna you know put a floor tom and a and a hi hat in here so <laughs> there's more to there's more sound to come out because the Deerhoof sound is really just that simple. You know it might drumming. This might be a good part in the show to bring up that. He has mild, ter- like a f- very mild form of Tourette's. And that is supposedly how he's able to play at these like supersonic speeds. He's playing so fast. Yeah, it's true. He is also super fast. He's so fast. And again, you got to see him live. If you've listened or digging what you're hearing today, this band is so awesome live. They're the most fun. But yeah, after seeing them live this last time, I've seen them probably four times. I went home to my kit and I took away all the toms <laughs> and did exactly I had a hi-hat, a crash ride, a kick and a snare, and I was just trying to play like him and I can't. And I played drums <laughs> for 20 years and it's it's like even if you took someone who was a drummer and, and practiced drums their whole life, sure. I don't think that they could play drums like Greg does. Well, I'm sure someone could. Someone could. But, okay, there's drummers there, out there's, there. But... You know, to get to a point where you understand his nuance and his intuition is, it's going to, it's a big trip to make. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you can play basketball, but who has the flair of LeBron James or Kobe Bryant? Like not everyone can have that finesse and he has a certain finesse. Sure. Like any, any notable drummer has a certain thing to what they do. A certain signature. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Greg's is just like, it's so unique to him. And we'll, we'll bring that up later in the end of the episode. So to keep going, <laughs> let's go to a quick, uh, oh, real quick, I guess, you know, it's the sixth album. Uh, it's again now. We're sixth album. Sixth studio album. So we started on their fourth, we hit their fifth, and now we're at their sixth. That was their sixth. Uh, Greg, Satomi, John and Chris, uh, critically claimed, yada, yada, yada. So let's do a quick EP that came out in 2005. It's called Green Cosmos EP. I'm bringing this ep up to talk about greg's composition work this is a really great ep 
and a lot of a lot of well i'll just let the song speak for itself and you'll kind of hear the difference from what we've been hearing in their other albums this song is called spiral golden town to turn and do like a lush <laughs> space disco that, that's a good question well not only that uh this entire ep satomi sings in japanese which is fun nice and i like that you pointed out that what does make this band different is satomi's japanese-ness which is mm-hmm. we should be celebrating it's fantastic and we love it um, i wonder i wonder if it's the juxtaposition of well, I guess it would you know going back to what I was saying about like vocals and drums being mm-hmm. a thing that would hold a band back for me. The way her vocals are always mixed into a record, it's so sharp. Yeah, I wonder if that's a reason I never like got into them because I was I'm just listening to it. And I'm like, as much as I get it, it's like that's what I'm not enjoying. Is like that's like the that's the block for me to get into everything else is her singing. I was just always drawn to this band and her singing at first was tough for me 
and I mean that in the most loving way. And now I, I, it's second nature. It's like breathing in and out. I just, oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, for my Western ears, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like... Just, I mean, I don't know. I even listen to, like, a ton of, like, Japanese pop music. I know you do. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but there's... I, maybe it's just a juxtaposition. To put it into perspective again, Satomi, which is mind-boggling to me, being in, in a bunch of bands that went nowhere, this was her first band. Sure. She, she flew to San Francisco and a week later was in this band, Deerhoof, and never played, a, <laughs> never played an <laughs> instrument, never sang, never did anything. And, uh... Like she's amazing. Yeah, she was playing some really groovy bass lines she's, in that song too. She is in and live. She, yeah, it's so really that's also great. what ten years into playing. So you figure you're gonna be, you're playing all the time for like ten years. You're gonna get pretty decent. You're gonna get very decent. And when you're playing with amazing musicians sure. like the rest of them, yeah. You know, I wanted to play this EP because it definitely sounds different than the three other albums we heard, and it's a lot more. You know, I feel like we're getting into Greg's composition. And I went to whosample.com because I, I was always wondering if this was a sample. But I don't think it is. I think this is... No, no. It sounds like they're just... They have like a horn player came in and then there's some keyboard tracks. Yeah. I always thought they maybe sampled some like old world, some like European like, yeah, they movie just have, like, or something. They have like this weird Arabesque like kind of... <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I don't know, string sound. And it's unfortunate, you know, our show's pressed for time we can't play the whole ep but this ep is totally worth checking out because all the tracks are kind of weird like this uh let's not waste any more time and let's <laughs> so this ep came out in 2005 and then they released their seventh studio album also in 2005 and guess what double album double album double album and gonna EP happen in the same year and four consecutive years of four consecutive awesome albums. <laughs> Are you not a fan yet? <laughs> Do you not love this band? They're really great. They're really great. Um, <laughs> I, I can say that, you know, I've always thought Deerhoof were really great, but there has always been something that I've just been like, why am I not compelled to go buy the record? And I think I figured out what it was. It is the vocals? I think it's the vocals. Well, by the end of the second episode, hopefully we get you hooked. Okay. This is a fun song. Yeah, let's just jump into the song and then we'll talk about the album. So this is this song is called O'Malley, Former Underdog.
yeah, they keep getting a little bit poppier each time. <laughs> a little bit chiller, right? Yeah. It's not as spastic, a little bit more relaxed. I, I think that's also, you know, we were talking about Modest Mouse earlier today. We were. How about, you know, how great their indie albums were and... Well, that's, this is my opinion. I think yeah. their their early indie records are really great. Like pretty much all the singles, all the you know the three proper albums, or two and a half albums. Then once they signed to Columbia, there was something changed very dramatically in the band. And what made those records so energizing, so energetic and great, just wasn't there anymore. I mean, I have everything like on my computer up to like 2005 or six or something like that, but it's just like, meh, meh, meh. Doesn't really grab me anymore. But Deerhoof still has that kind of tooth and edge to what they're doing. That it's like, oh yeah, so like they're kind, of, they're moving away from being discordant and noisy, and each time they're maturing, they're they're just maturing. Yeah. But they're not losing what made them want to, you know, you, you can still see, like you were saying, when they get in and they work, they're like, why is it that we do this? Right. They're not doing it because they're expected to. They're making sure that they do it because they want to. And you can hear that they're happy doing it. They're like, are these songs that we want to go and play for the next six to eight months to if we have a really popular hit for a college radio band? Like, if we have, like, a really popular song that's going to, like, become part of our touring catalog, you know, for the next 15 years. I'm getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about that. It's so nice to to know that a band strives for that. Yeah. It's really nice. neat. And I was watching that documentary, um, checking in at 20, all day today to get psyched <laughs> for this episode. Every time I, like, look into the break room, there's <laughs> there sitting there watching it. And, uh, yeah, to, to hear Greg talk about about why why am i doing this what is the yeah. reason behind it and it's you know it's not money it's not getting chicks it's not fame it's like he he is an artist and he wants to to strive to to answer that question and he's like i haven't answered that question and i keep getting closer with every album yeah and he was talking to about i was talking to him at the at the show and it's correlates like he does the set list based on how he feels that or he does the set list each, each night they play kind of like he chooses it and he kind of picks what songs that they're going to play. There's like a big bootleg community for Deerhoof. There should be. I don't I I don't think this band is as huge as they should be. Well, I mean, there's not necessarily a lot of bands that you would expect would have a big like bootleg community, but you know, if he's like they're doing different shows every night, people are probably being like figuring that out and being like, "Oh, we're going to document these." I you know what? Oh, I don't think so. Oh, that's crazy. And because uh, well, I know like Ween, you wouldn't think Ween does, but Ween yeah, has like Ween. a big. It's because like a lot of fish fans fall. Yeah, yeah, jam band kids get into that. They just want. Uh, but the reason I brought up all that stuff was because he was saying how he chose a set list the other night that like he got close to there. Like these songs are great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, fancying myself as an artistic person, an artiste, an artiste, uh, I spend a lot of time also thinking about why I have this comp- creative compulsion. Why is it that like every day I try to do something that's just like with, you know, creating with intention. What kind of, why do I need to get like an idea on paper? Why do I need to like, you know, sit there when I, you know, go, go to the bathroom, bring a sketchbook into the bathroom yeah. and just sit there and doodle for, you know, however long I'm, I'm <laughs> sure I'm, I'm pontificating on the potty. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, so but like to see that's what they're doing here. Yeah. They have they, it's the core of the group for 20 years, 20 plus years. They all share that passion to create and that keeps their music really vibrant and exciting. So it's not like they're like, "Oh, we got to like churn out another record for like the label because the last one's tour didn't generate ticket sales that it did and we're kind of in debt." They're just doing it because they want to they're trying to figure something out for themselves. That's a perfect leeway into letting you know that on this album The Runners 4, Satomi and Chris switched bass and guitar. So oh. just, and you didn't even know it. You didn't even probably sure. notice that. And kind of keeping it fresh, kind of keeping it I fun. I think there was a lot of like instrument switching early in the day, like in the the ninety when they were 90s improvising. Records. Yeah, yeah. Because they they started out as like kind of a weird improv-y band. Yeah, that's why I kind of skipped all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy music to listen to, and I think that like you know Satomi's vocal performance was grown in that atmosphere of being dissonant. You know, she just moved from Japan. She didn't have a good grasp of English yet. So she was just vocalizing, and it was amongst these other people playing very discordant, disjointed, improvised, post-punk music, and she's kind of doing non-word vocals on top of it. Yeah, fitting into the improvisation. So it's like you're finally hearing, it took her like, what, 15 years to get to a point where she's kind of smoothing out and singing into the music a little bit. I'll disagree a little bit. I think that she was... I think that her singing has been the same on all the albums. Sure. I, well, maybe they're deci- maybe they're making decisions on how to mix it differently. Well, it's funny too because this is a double album, and of all the songs I could have chose, I chose one that she sang on. But on this album, uh, if you want to explore it more as a listener, everyone takes turns singing on this album. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Let uh, and this album was totally critically acclaimed. Um, Pitchfork named it sixth best album of 2005. New York Times loved it. Yada yada yada. Critically acclaimed. Yada yada yada. Still crazy that this were only at like 2005 because they kept turning out a record every year. Record every year, and we listened to this really cool EP also that came out the sure. same year as a double album. So I, you know, I wonder like how much of it is like that's a lot of material. And they're touring. They're touring. So yeah. at some point, it's like we just have a lot of material we need to to collate. So I wonder how much of it was them just being like, oh, this batch of songs works together as an EP. Like, you know, which was like them being like, this is the stuff we've been like jamming on in the basement and we should put it together as an album that and does this make is sense. the stuff that you know this is like an experimental composition kind of thing the ep definitely had like more of a broader experimental thing because it was so different from what it's more expect. composed and more sat down yeah. whereas these the albums are more kind of live jamming yeah like out, the, yeah. the arrangement had all the other arrangements that wouldn't work into their live set whereas their albums consistently are like this is music we're going to play live they have that rock band you're going to go see us, and you're going to hear these songs live. And please go see them. They're the best band to see live. And I got so excited, too. Every time I see them live, I get more and more like obsessed with them. <laughs> okay, so this episode is called A Love Letter, Greg Saunders, and I want to prove it. <laughs> so we're still on the album Runners 4, and we are going to have a drum off. There are three drummers that the critics love to compare. And those drummers are Greg Sonner of Deerhoof, Brian Chippendale of Lightning Bolt and Black Puss, and Zach Hill of Hella and Death Grips. And we were talking about good drummers and we were watching the Checking at 20. I want to give a shout out to John Colpitz, AKA Kid Millions of the band Oneida, who should definitely be on this list. Yeah. No offense, I think you're going to disagree with me because I want to kick off Brian Chippendale off this list and put, <laughs> and put Kid Millions on. Um, 
I, I would kick off Zach, Zach Hill. <laughs> oh, man, I think Zach Hill's crazy good. I mean, I haven't listened to much he's done since I've really checked out, actively checked out a Zach Hill record in like He's done so much stuff, though. Yeah, you yeah. might have listened to him not even known. So <laughs> so is, so is Kid Millions. I've never listened to Death Grips. You know, I didn't like Death Grips at first. It took my friend, like, I had to be like, explain this to me. <laughs> and now I get it. But So, yeah, we're going to have a drum off. Greg Sonner versus Zach Hill versus Brian Chippendale. And let's do Chippendale first. So this is Brian Chippendale, the drummer of Lightning Bolt, off the album Hyper Magic Mountain. And Mike and I chose the song Tomorrow Tomorrowland. Tomorrow Morrowland. Tomorrow Morrowland. Chippendale playing drums in the band Lightning Bolt off the album Hyper Magic Mountain. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> you were here. I was here. <laughs> the magic of editing, I was always here. Uh, so here next is Zach Hill. Uh, this is a clip from the band Hella. Uh, and this is off of the album Hold Your Horse Is. And this is a song called Biblical Violence. <laughs> Rocky, math, Rocky, math, Rocky. Yeah, the most math, Rocky, math. So it's interesting because like, Lightning Bolt was so incredibly visceral. Yeah, people, if you get a chance to see Lightning Bolt, go, go see, see Lightning, Lightning Bolt. Bolt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to break the momentum, so now let's throw Greg Sonner in the mix from the album The Runners Four, which we were listening to. Let's listen to a track called Cirrus Star. <laughs> So three very distinct drumming styles. Yeah. And they all have a lot of uh, 
equal amounts of propulsion behind them. <laughs> Propulsion's a good word. Propulsion. For yeah. I, I listen to these and it's, I really don't, I never got into Hella. Okay. Um, I guess I could side chart, I could side tangent. No, that's Hella. part of this conversation. Um, yeah. Whereas it's like, he's so, Zach Hill is just doing so much, so fast, so jazzy, so complicated that it's like, oh, after like a minute of it, it just gets boring as shit because it's just everything over and over again. It's That's so funny much. because I've seen Chippendale live and it's spectacular, but kind of Chippendale's drumming is that to me. Like take out the jazziness because Chippendale is just straight thrash. Sure, sure. And it's fun and it's... and it, It's interesting too because like, yeah, I don't listen to Lightning Bolt anywhere near as much as I did like in my 20s. And even still, like, when Hyper Magic Mountain came out, it's like, I listen to it now. I'm like, oh, this is really great. But I'm like, I listen to two songs, and I'm like, okay, I remember. I remember that. <laughs> and I go on to something else. So I'm having this drum off. I'm going to pick a favorite. Greg Sonner is my favorite drummer. Sure. And I feel like he's the most musical of the three. I feel like he might not have the propul... propul- no, he's, he's... I think they're all equally propulsive. They're well, all, maybe yeah, Chippendale's the a bit more propulsive. Chippendale might get it. Yeah, he's the most spastic of all of them. Funny enough, I want to point out that all of them are friends. There's no competition between them. <laughs> they all have collaborated with each other. Uh, Greg Sonner and Zach Hill and Joanna Newsom, of all people, have a project called Nervous Cop. Oh, I remember Nervous Cop, mm-hmm. yeah. That's, that's the three of them. And I will point out that all three of them, let's throw in Kid Millions too, skinny, tall, white dudes. <laughs> kind of like. <laughs> they gotta have long arms. You gotta have long arms, <laughs> and they're all fast as shit. I wanna point out that we talked about things being boring as shit and fast as shit. This is fast as shit and boring. <laughs> out of the three, I just wanted to end the episode with my love letter to Greg Sonner that I think he is the best drummer of all of them. I think he's the most musical drummer. I think that he listens and he composes and he's, I think he's kind of a step above the rest. It's kind of tough because with Death Grips, uh, Zach Hill does show off some of his composition and it's really interesting and, and hard to wrap your head around. I think you were saying you were, I've never listened to them, yeah, but. Oh yeah, we should, uh, we're out of time. To, <laughs> we're out of time. But no Death Grips is, is a weird one. Yeah. And definitely we have to give huge ups to Brian Chippendale. I think Black Puss is his solo band yeah, yeah. is mind-melting. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, it's insane. It's totally insane. He sings with all these guitar pedals. I, I'm not even sure how he does it, honestly. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I've I've seen the setup, and it's just kind of it's a head-scratcher. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I don't know. What, how do you feel? Who's your favorite drummer of the three? I still think Lightning Bolt might be my favorite band of the three. Yeah. But I think uh, it's also interesting to make a side note that at least in Hella and Lightning Bolt, those are both duos. So the conversations between the musicians are shorter and they're also not writing songs as spatially as Deerhoof does. Yes. So Greg Saunders shows a lot more. The band pushes him to be a lot broader in his playing and in his expression. So even though like you know uh, Zach Hill, it's like tons of symbols, tons of he's hitting everything yeah, as much as he too, can. Yeah. It just gets this level of density where and speed where it's like okay, cool. Like I'm not a drummer, but he's a player's player, and Saunders is he's also a player's player. But he's writing. There's music that you know you want to listen to over and over again. I agree with you 100. percent That's exactly what I wanted to say, and thank you for saying it so eloquently. <laughs> Um, I think, do we wrap up this episode? Anything else you want to say? I think I'm going to wrap up this. Yeah, that's a good one. We can wrap up with this. So 
we're going to listen to the next uh, episode, Deerhoof. We're going to lose Chris Cohen, and we're going to gain Ed Rodriguez. And I'm very excited to play more amazing Deerhoof songs. Do they go back down to one guitarist? Or they they did two? for a second. It was just the three of them, uh, which we'll be skipping. <laughs> so Don Dietrich stays with the band the whole time. Yeah, John Dietrich stays with the band the whole okay. time. I'll, we'll consider him a core member. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Great. Great. Great episode. If you like today's episode on Deerhoof, then we here at Bandology are going to recommend that you check out the band Ponytail. Ponytail is what happened when four art students at the Maryland Institute College of Art were joined together by a professor for an assignment for art class to start a band. Was it fate? Yes, it was fate. And in 2005, Ponytail was born. It is easy to experience the fun and excitement that is Ponytail. To me, they sound like the aftermath of the Big Bang explosion as the universe begins to take shape and form. Ponytail is a soundtrack to the cosmic whims and movements of heavenly bodies. The music is pure force for what is good and joyful in this world. Unfortunately, Ponytail disbanded and they no longer exist, but they have left us three albums for us to enjoy. Please check out the band Ponytail and keep rocking.
kind of want to do a little jab at Lightning Bolt saying, well, that was a Lightning Bolt episode. <laughs> That's all I need to hear of them. <laughs> all their songs sound the same. Yeah, no, they, I, they, yeah they kind of do. <laughs> I, but, but again, like Chip and Dale is the shit. One last story. Uh, I saw him at the, if this makes it to the, the final cut, I saw Brian Chippendale at this at the Boredom 77 Drummers. Yeah. Do you know about this? Yeah. And they had 77 drummers in a spiral, and Chippendale finished the spiral. He was oh. the last drummer on the outside. And I think spiritually that made sense. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Thank you. Thank you.